Hi, everyone. This is your fearless podcast host, Bree. I'm really excited for today's episode on Juno, co-hosted by friends of the show, Frederick Lickard and Mint Marcellus. We had so much fun talking about this movie together, and it just made me want to rewatch it all over again. Now, you might notice that shortly after the intro, Mint disappears, and you don't really hear from them much until about halfway through the episode. That was due to a recording error on Mint's part that they didn't notice for about 40 minutes. So I've tried to edit around it. There might be a few bits that are a touch awkward or seem like something is missing, but just so you know, that's what's up. And I also just wanted to say that if you want more of Mint's thoughts on movies, follow them on Twitter at Mintiford, that's M-Y-N-T-A-F-O-R-D, and you can find links to a lot of their more expanded thoughts on movies. I'm sure if you just pop on to ask them a question about Juno that wasn't answered in the first half of this episode, they'd be happy to answer. More than anything, I'm sad that you don't get to hear the entirety of the wonderful conversation the three of us had, but I am still grateful that I got to discuss such a special movie with two of my dear friends. Hope you enjoy the episode and do stick around because Mint does come back. Tales from the Rec Room, where women are trusted friends. Please put your hands where I can see them and surrender any bombs. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, and my whole house smells like soup. And who is with me on the line today? I am Frederick Blickert, longtime listener, third or perhaps fourth time caller. I actually try really hard to be cool, and I dream of having Weimariners. Dream big. And I'm Mint Marcellus, also a longtime listener, also a third or maybe fourth time caller. And I'm just like losing my faith with humanity. Yeah, I think you guys, like, you, you've both appeared in, like, non-canon episodes. You've appeared in our Roundup episode, so that counts. Um, so welcome to the new show, Fred and Mint. Um, as I said, as you guys established, you're both longtime friends of the show. You've both appeared in several episodes before. And as a kind of, like, go-to movie experts, Mint, I am going to get you on a music episode at some point. Um, I'll say, how do you feel about Breakfast in America? As in the Super Tramp? Yes. Uh... I have so many feelings about Breakfast in America. (laughs) Like, I think it's kind of a bad record, but it has some great songs on it. Whereas uh, Even in the Quietest Moments is an incredible album, front to back. Okay. Well, then our hypothetical 2112 uh, uh, episode, I'm sure, we'll uh, we'll get you on for. But uh, so can you both tell me, I guess, starting with Fred, why you agreed to do this episode, frankly, in a heartbeat. And this episode is, of course, Juno. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by Juno, and I'm always extremely interested in films that have kind of uh, these shifting receptions, uh, where where they just kind of go through waves of being either loved or hated or both. Um, And Juno has definitely had an uneven kind of legacy, uh, and a really odd one. And I've always really liked it. I'm generally into Diablo Cody's movies. um, And so I'm always really interested in digging why people turned on her specifically, because they really turned on her. Uh, And I'm also really interested in how that impacted her later career, because she's had some really great films afterwards that clearly are kind of in conversation with uh, some of that backlash. And I'm also a Jennifer Garner super fan, uh, Mm -hmm. longtime fan of Alias and Felicity. Uh, And so for me, she's kind of the, the MVP of Juno. Yes. She played a stripper on Alias as one of her many aliases. Yes, indeed. Um, 
I do like how she started out as kind of like the action girl, and I don't think of her for action stuff at all. I think of her like for this beautiful sensitivity she has. Totally, yeah. Yeah. All right, and Mint, you were a later addition to this episode, but I'm really glad. First of all, I think anything that brings Fred and Mint together is an absolute peanut butter jelly situation. Um, But can you tell me why you agreed for Juno? Because you aren't as gung-ho about this movie as Fred and I are. Well, I wasn't when you asked me, but I watched it a couple of hours ago, and it got the tears in my eyes and really for me it's that in the last 12 months i have in university classes taught both jennifer's body for diablo cody and up in the air for jason reitman uh in Mm -hmm. fact i taught fred's book on uh jennifer's body when i was uh, doing that class and i'm a bit of a jason reitman super fan and i love his collaborations with cody uh not just this but um, hard agree i would act Right? Like, Tully and, um, uh, what's the other one called? Uh, Young Adult. Young Adult. Yeah. Are wild films. Um, And she's just got this energy to her writing that is able to be both highly ironic and highly weird, while also hitting you where it hurts and where it feels. And, yeah, so that, that was the... Uh, the reason it was an immediate yes was because mm-hmm. I have a deep connection to these films, even though I definitely soured on Juno in my like undergrad um, terminally online feminist days. <laughs> I mean, I will say this. I still love Juno a lot, but it's not a movie that I feel an urge to rewatch often. Um, I felt an urge to rewatch it after a particular personal experience, which we will cer- certainly get to. But um, other than that... Um, It's not something that, like, I loved it so much when it came out. And while it never left my consciousness, it's not one of those things that, like, oh, if I watch it, I'm going to see something that I didn't see before. Um, But, and also, we'll get further into this, but I find what makes Diablo Cody's writing magic, since I started doing this show and focusing more on movies, I found, to me, the best writing is stuff that is highly, highly specific, but also has a certain universality to it. Um, And that's a really hard line to walk, but I find her stuff does that really well. Um, so now before we go forward, Tales from the Rec Room has one important tradition, plugs up front, uh, because no one makes it to the end of the episode to learn where to follow people. Uh, so I'm, importantly, as of like yesterday, Twitter has been rebranded as X. I'm barely on Twitter anymore. Uh, we're recording this July 24th. Who knows what happens by the time this episode hits the virtual airwaves as of August 10th. So tentatively, starting with Fred, where can we find uh, you or some of the things you've written online? Uh, you can still definitely find me on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter or or whatever it'll be called when this airs, because I can't imagine that rebrand is going to stick. Uh, I'm at F.A. Blickert. That's F-A-B-L-I-C-H-E-R-T. Uh, in terms of where you can find my work, I'm something of a lapsed entertainment writer since I recently made the move to communications, but uh, I do still have a lot of my writing floating around and, and some of the stuff I'm really proud of you can find at Vice, Extra, Paste, and Fashion. Uh, where I've gotten to write about some of my favorite movies of all time, like Starship Troopers, Face Off, Tank Girl, The Fifth Element, and Jennifer's Body, which uh, I also expanded into a a book that uh, Mint just mentioned. Uh, And you can find that. It's called Extra Salty, uh, pretty much anywhere where books are sold. So please do support your favorite local bookstores and order a copy there. So uh, now let's go through the where and when of when we first saw this movie. So we're making Fred feel old. Fred, uh, where were you when you uh, first saw this movie? Uh, I was not in high school, so I'm actually really excited to get um, Mint's perspective on that because I was uh, I was two years out of high school when it came out, and I kind of picked up on the buzz pretty quickly that was that was kind of happening around that movie. 
So I went to see it in theaters and and kind of got to have that experience before the the pushback and the and the kind of the various backlashes from both left and right uh, kind of started to come for it. Um, so yeah, I was I guess I guess I was an early adopter on the on the Juno front. Yeah, I was um, I was in my last year of high school. I took a fifth year of high school because I was incredibly immature, uh, and I think it came out like the first semester. It, it, this was like a winter movie, wasn't it? Um, I feel like it was, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely went to go see it with uh, all my best friends, and um, I I loved this movie. But what I find funny is that what drew me to this movie was Michael Sarah. Um, uh, although I was actually familiar with Elliot Page, I was familiar with him from Hard Candy, and none of my friends were into Hard Candy. That is not a movie you watch with friends. Um, but I had just really enjoyed Superbad a few months before, and I was like, oh, this, you know, the, the Arrested Development kid's in another movie. And uh, then I, I, you know, sit in the movie and, oh, everyone I like is in this movie. Um, so both of you, at the time, what were your favorite go-to movie snacks? Uh, I've also been pretty consistent with movie snacks since I was a kid, and it, but, but it, it kind of alternates between either popcorn or Sour Patch Kids. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and at the time that Juno came out, I was living in Ottawa, and the little rep theater that I used to go to had really good popcorn, and it was like $3 for a bag of it. Uh, for like a reasonable amount of it, uh, which which was amazing. But when I was at the multiplex, it was it was usually Sour Patch. Mm-hmm. Movie theaters, I was generally popcorn, but important to note that I was living in North Bay at the time. And um, uh, now North Bay has like the good mall and then it has the shit mall. I worked at the shit mall, uh, The except the only reason people would ever come to the shit mall was because the Cineplex was there. And um, I worked at the Dollarama And people would come to the Dollarama before a movie and get cheap snacks. And uh, I don't remember what they were called, but we had these like imitation bounty bars that I would often grab from work before going. And so I was surely eating an imitation bounty bar when I watched this movie. I feel like they Uh, still sell those at Dollarama. I I don't know what they're called either, but I can picture them. Yeah, well, there's a vegan um, bounty uh, dupe called Mahalo Bars, uh, mm. which are now my thing. Um, so what did young you love about this movie? Yeah, the, the dialogue totally worked for me at the time. And I think uh, it, there was something, and it seems funny to say it now, so many years later when so many things have been influenced by Juno, but it felt new. Like it, it felt like this Very. kind of fresh new voice. It felt like a kind of, you know, distinctly like there, there was a precedent for this kind of American independent youthful cinema, but, but it felt like it was really kind of doing its own thing. Uh, you know, the, there was that kind of soundtrack culture at the time. It was tapping into that, but it still kind of felt like it had, it had its own cool, fun, fun soundtrack. The Diablo Codyisms before people turned on them were, were kind of fun. <laughs> uh, that, that very distinctive kind of sketchy rotoscope animation in the opening credits um I you know all, all of that was kind of working for me mm-hmm. for me I I think like the experience of um being a uh, like I've, I've said this um this podcast has been me grappling with my not like other girls phase um and uh so that was a big thing like and you know Elliot Page said this back in the day but like there and I think sometimes people interpret this as a bit of a not like other girls quote but we weren't used to seeing female characters like Juno 
on screen. Um, and like I, I've come around. I've, I like a lot of chick flicks. I've done episodes of this podcast about Ten Things I Hate About You and Center Stage, which is the chickiest chick flick. But it also felt like those were our only choices for especially high school movies back then. And so this, like you said, Fred, everything about it felt new. Um, and I wasn't used to seeing dialogue this absolutely biting. And um, yeah, the uh, and yes, the Diablo Cody speak absolutely can relate. Um, so what what was your love of this movie? What was it? Was it something that you shared with your friends or were you alone and liking it? Let's start with Fred. Uh, it, it was definitely popular in the in my circles. Like, again, I, I wasn't a teenager, so it, I didn't have that experience of it being kind of a sleepover movie or of it like kind of speaking to our experiences in the moment. But it definitely felt like something that um, that we all kind of shared a sense of, uh, of of love for as this kind of relatable thing. You know, like I said, I was, I was only like a couple of years out of high school. So there was still this mm-hmm. sense of like, oh, yeah, this is like capturing something that feels kind of real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I mean, I, I was definitely aware of the backlash when it came like that kind of seemed to be coming in while it was still even in theaters uh, before mm-hmm. before the Oscars, before Diablo Cody actually won her Oscar for it. There was kind of the, the pushback against her, uh, both as kind of being, you know, whether it was anti-abortion or, or just that she was a former stripper. So we had to kind of knock her down a peg or whatever it was. Um, but it never felt all that close to me. Like I was seeing it happen, uh, but I, I was kind of surrounded by people who seemed to really like it. Uh, and, and I actually remember that the soundtrack would play ad nauseum in the in the store I worked. I worked in a, in a health food store where somebody had bought that CD and just kept playing it over and over again. And that was probably the closest I've ever come to hating Juno was was just getting completely sick of that sick of that soundtrack. The songs are also a very special brand of repetitive, even like all the young dudes. Totally. I love that song, but I had to sing it at karaoke a couple of weeks ago. And um, wow, you're going to sing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, yeah. His codiums, his codiisms are also the worst in the movie, I think. And they come yes. so early and it's like, it's kind of, I can't, I can't really hold it against people for being immediately put off by the movie when he's saying, you know, that's one doodle that can't be undid, home skillet. Home like, skillet. Oh my God. I am so glad that phase of like, and speaking as a white, um, that there, that, that that whole phase of white people like ironically like in a chipper voice saying something like, "Hey, home slice!" Like, I'm I'm so glad we're not doing that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, although I have I have a white colleague who always calls me homie. Um, and uh, just to make us all feel old, he was born in 1999. Um, oh wow. Yeah, I herniated a disc just just saying that. <laughs> um, I, I will say so, though, in terms of how it uh, ranked among my friends, because um, with almost every one of these episodes so far, I've been like, yeah, none of my friends liked this movie, even when it's been like really mainstream things like uh, Ten Things I Hate About You and stuff. This was the one thing that all my friends loved, which I think came from two factors. One, just the fact that I was 18 and I was probably the perfect age at which to see this movie. The other, I was at art school at the time. Art school kids loved this movie. All right, so we're going to get into contextualizing the era, and this is like the free-for-all section. So, you know, I know both of you are very polite individuals, but I say just interject whenever you want. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, in terms of genre, like we've talked a lot on this podcast about the early aughts, like high school movie explosion and not to blame everything on 9-11, but um, uh, this is like 9-11 like, and 
uh, I'm, maybe I'm just thinking of this because there was a recent episode of This Ends at Prom that talked about this, but the kind of stage of between 9-11 and Mean Girls. Um, weird, weird way to define an era, but that was kind of the gradual like tapering off of this explosion of high school movies because between 1999 and 2001, we saw a huge explosion of it and then it kind of fizzled out a little bit and then Mean Girls brought it like brought it back a little bit. Um, similarly, what I found uh, did come in that period was there was this emergence of the very pure PG rated like Disney ish stuff like 2003 2004 we started seeing things like a Cinderella story and Freaky Friday and like that eventually the high school musical movies um, and like this particular episode of this ends at prom that I was listening to they were talking about the 2003 movie 13 which did stand out because it wasn't any of that but I think Juno was like a return to the high school movie but as I've said in the past like there was like you know, the the 1999 through 2001 high school movies were still kind of heightened and like, you know, the very stereotypical, like, here are the cliques, here are all the beautiful people. This felt so much more intentionally grounded and almost looking back, it seems almost overly grounded, like it's making a show of how grounded it is. But yeah, like, I think this was kind of an emergence of, or a re-emergence of the high school movie because I do think we've seen more of them since then and it's never returned to that like glossy 10 things I hate about you she's all that style I think I think that's true and I think uh an interesting thing about that period is that we also had things like I mean if we shift over to tv we had things like the OC and Gossip Girl kind of within that period mm -hmm. uh which are kind of like the, the, the next generation of 90210 or like that more kind of edgy take on the teen experience, which mm -hmm. it, like Juno kind of feels like it exists somewhere in between that take and the, the more sanitized kind of Cinderella story, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, yeah, that kind of made it feel like this breath of fresh air where it's like this kind of polished uh, indie film that, that ends up having that kind of uh, mainstream legitimacy of, of, uh, Academy Award nominations and you know these kind of serious actors a lot of them TV actors which which maybe kind of knocks it down a peg in that in that sort of way of looking at, at films but but still kind of serious actors Alice and Janney and, and J.K. Simmons especially as these these kind of fairly big serious character actors they um, are my parents <laughs> America's parents mm -hmm. <clears throat> Yeah. And, and I, to bring, sorry, sorry go, go ahead, ahead Fred. Oh, <laughs> I was going to say, I think we could draw a pretty direct line from Seth Cohen to Bleecker um, mm -hmm. as, as like, you know, Bleecker as maybe the more, uh, the more like the irony you're talking about that, that kind of irony tinged take on the, the aughts nice guy. Uh, and, and I think maybe the closest analogy to Juno for this period that, that I would point to would probably be something like Gilmore Girls, which had that sort of, ironic tone that sort of playful really talky talky so yeah. talky yeah that i i think in that way they, they were maybe playing in the same kind of ballpark but gilmore girls still had that kind of wholesome family channel kind of vibe to it to some extent that i think juno tries to move away from Mm -hmm. I will also say that, you know, to bring it back to Superbad, you can draw a line between Superbad and this, like, especially like as much as Superbad is very heightened and, um, you know, at times almost comic bookish, um, you know, I think of like um, Michael Sarah doing the like, calm down, Greg, it's soccer, it's soccer, yeah. like, just the it felt like screenwriters were finally realizing like, oh, this is how teenagers talk, you know, totally. um, 
Yeah. So another note on genre, this is probably the beginning of, I think, what some some others have called like a faux indie boom. Um, I know that like indie as aesthetic didn't start with this movie, but it, it varies after this, I'd say solidly meant an aesthetic more than an actual designation. Um, and I probably should also point out that we were at a real saturation point of blockbuster movies. And I think this might have been a response to what was at the time blockbuster fatigue. Um, <clears throat> and looking at the top grossing movies of all seven, it, it, it is all all blockbusters still but it's astonishing how many are sequels and franchise movies so spider-man 3 and i'm just gonna say kirsten dunst has come up on pretty much every episode of this podcast um this is the summer of dunst i realized recently that because i was like oh yeah all almost all my favorite movies are kirsten dunst movies and then i remembered wait my actual favorite movie is eternal sunshine and that is a kirsten dunst movie (laughs) um spider-man 3 unfortunately not among my favorite movies Someone's going to come around to defend this movie at some point, and I'm sure I'll be here for it. But um, uh, Shrek the Third, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Born Ultimatum. In the top six, the only movie that isn't yet part of franchise is Transformers, and that's still existing IP. Uh, But then you get just out of the top 10, you see something, you see Knocked Up at number 12. And then you go a little further down, you see Superbad. Um, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, unfortunate. Uh, Blades of Glory. Um, Like comedies have, there have always been a few big like high grossing comedies, but this was a really good time for comedy aside from Chuck and Larry. These were comedies that had some sort of conceit of either maturity or like edginess to them. Um, Like whether it's because they talked about things like pot culture or they had smarter screenwriting. Like, I, I don't know. I think this was a great time for comedy. And there was, pe- there were people seeking out these kind of like, more clever comedies it's funny that you say that too i like not to not to sidetrack us too much but the degree to which that period is sort of being replicated now because i you know i think there's there's been like a solid decade or so where we've gotten a little bit numb to that reality of everything just being a franchise film like we talk about it but it's Mm -hmm. it's just normal and it, it was kind of a crisis at that time like it was something that people were talking about a lot like whoa you look at you look at the movie theater listings and everything's a sequel um, and we've kind of circled back to that attitude a little bit. It's like mm. after after being numb to it for all that time, we're suddenly like, hey, hey, can, can we get just like it's like we're we're just exhausted of it now. And we're getting excited when something like Barbenheimer happens or or like or when kind of old timey comedies start coming back. You know, Jennifer Lawrence making the, the jump over to what feels like a really 2000s comedy um, mm. or, or other just kind of like. I guess kind of the return of Seth Rogen more on TV now. Uh, I loved Platonic. I'm just going to say. Yeah. So good. (laughs) But yeah, it's like, again, kind of feels like a bit of a 2000s formula where we're pushing back against the really familiar kind of uh, IP driven or franchise driven uh, blockbuster fare and, and looking for something like it's like, we've been waiting for this generation's Juno or something to come along and and break the cycle. And maybe it's Oppenheim or maybe it's Barbie. I don't know. For I I'm stealing this from a tweet I saw, but there already was a Barbenheimer. It's called tank girl. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And now it's like a big deal when we do, whereas we used to really write them off and now we're like, Oh, thank God, George Clooney and Julia Roberts are going to an Island together. It's a totally medium movie, but I'm so excited to get to see it in a movie theater. I love that we're just so excited about mid shit now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so in terms of stars, it's probably important to note that Elliot Page, like, although like he was definitely a rising star at the time, was probably the least big name in the cast, unless you count Olivia Thorby as main cast. Um, and in fact, the adults in this movie are played by four huge, huge stars. Again, mostly TV stars. Um, Michael Sarah was also quite visible because he had Arrested Development and then especially super bad, like... Again, Elliot Page's biggest movie was probably the X-Men sequel. I forget which... There have been so many X-Men that I forget what, what the name of that one was, but that was the one with the Vinnie Jones doing I'm the Juggernaut Bitch. Yeah, that was the third one. That, but that was after Juno, right? Or was that just before it? I I believe I saw it with my... Okay. Yeah, I saw that with my friends from West Ferris, so that was 2006, baby. But Because uh, I think he was the one that Vinnie Jones yelled I'm the Juggernaut Bitch at. I think. Oh wow! I think you're right because yeah, that's that's when Shadowcat is like running through walls and stuff, and Vinnie Jones yeah. is like. <laughs> I have not thought about that movie since I thought saw it in theaters, um, but yeah, like I again, Hard Candy. Uh, that's not a movie you watch with your friends. But when I did see it, I was like, oh my God, it's the star from Hard Candy because I'm a jackass who loves Hard Candy. Wait, how do we all feel about Hard Candy in this room? Oh, I love Hard Candy. <gasps> oh, um, well, I, 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 will, I will never say about this movie, you'll like it. It's a very <laughs> divisive movie, but the acting in it is incredible. And Elliot Page was really young. He was like 16 in this movie. And looked like 12 yeah um so yeah fantastic movie and pa- uh, but yeah. patrick wilson the actual paul rudd of hollywood uh looks exactly the same as he did in hard candy oh gorgeous man understatedly yeah. gorgeous man oh yeah um but yeah, in terms of casting, I also just want to point out that some people have turned around reflexively. And like I said, they've called Juno this like not like other girls movie. And like somehow like people interpreting what Elliot Page said about characters not being like Juno as girl hate. And like, I think people need to really remember the way girls were portrayed. Teen girls were portrayed in high school movies at the time. A lot of it was either very exploitative, very stereotypical and stuff that frankly dumbed us down and um there's there's nothing wrong with chick flicks and girly girls on screen but when that's all you see i think that's a huge problem like we didn't have a juno in our lives and uh, i think what people have interpreted elliot's words as saying that there aren't girls like juno in the world Mm. and he was saying that there are so many girls like juno and they don't get to see themselves on screen and that's also a kind of one of the messages in barbie about the way like we can't just be one thing you know like so yeah. Well, I, I think it, I would also argue that the movie itself kind of pushes back against Juno's positioning that way because we get Juno's uh, uh, voiceover, even when she's just describing her best friend who's like attracted to the older teachers. Uh, <laughs> and, and there's this kind of like a hint at a little bit of slut shaming and, and, and of like this kind of, oh, she's so naive, like going after the older man. And then that's exactly yes. what happens in the film with Juno. She ends up developing this kind of attraction to the Jason Bateman character. Um, and, and you know, we're kind of reminded in those moments that she's really, a, like, for all of her bluster, she's a kid. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she's sort of not quite seeing through what's going on in this dynamic. But that, mm-hmm. that kind of aligns her with her popular cheerleader friend uh, in a way that I think does add complexity to both those characters at the same time and, and sort of not to give it too much credit, but sort of undoes the not like other girls narrative, uh, at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. I love that you have no idea how cool Juno and Leah are supposed to be. Um, because yeah. again, that was me in high school. Like I was, especially, I mean, like 
I went to art school, so I think I was a little cool because I can only really be cool at an art school. But like, I had friends who were stoner burnouts who were also on the honor roll. I had friends who were, you know, math dorks. I had friends who were like the shop kids and they didn't just hang around with the shop kids because like as much as high school does have hierarchies and, you know, classism and a lot of isms and stuff, they're also not these clear, like these very obvious boxes. Um, Like I... I was a fucking cheerleader in high school. Like, I don't think I, I don't think I emphasize that enough. I was a goddamn cheerleader, um, which even still strikes me as odd. But um, like, I don't know. I like that there's not really a discussion of cliques or anything in this high school, mainly because it is more a coming of age story that focuses on essentially one individual. Yeah, I, I mean, I had the same experience of high school and, and like I was on the rugby team and I'm like totally not an athlete type person that's like I was, Fred I didn't even know you played rugby I did yeah um, that's so cool and and yeah I mean I, I love that as well in Juno but where there's also that moment where um uh the, the girl whose house smells like soup who's whose face is just like that Katrina um, DeVorte yeah <laughs> <laughs> she's again like is she a popular girl like it, like we know that there's some amount of jealousy from Juno but it doesn't seem to be built around cliques. It's entirely tied to Bleecker because like, I have no idea. Like, what are these dynamics? They all just kind of intermingle in, in a way that's like, yeah, that that fits with my, I, like I was on the rugby team, but I wasn't really a typical athlete, but also neither was like anyone else who was on those teams. Yeah. Um, or, and the nerds weren't just nerds and the stoners were friends with all those people. And Yeah, you know. I can tell you that if my house smelled like soup, I'd have so many friends. Um, <laughs> You you come through the door and you smell potato leek. Like, what what a beautiful thing that is. Um, so I also want to just bring up, in terms of the context of the era, the soundtrack. Um, a friend of the show, Eric Peacock, and his show, uh, Soundtracker, is all about, like, the heyday of the original soundtrack. This soundtrack was the first movie OST to chop the top the charts in more than a year. Uh, the previous one being dream girls and so we were seeing like the decline of ost popularity as much as i've criticized this movie for being very very white uh kimia dobson being uh an artist of color a queer artist of color is an important thing i want to point out because their work really carries the soundtrack um and they're definitely the most prominent voice in the soundtrack although there are other great songs on it um and i think as a fan of indie music it's probably crucial to highlight artists of color in the indie scene because the indie scene is uh first of all stereotypes is very male but when it's even when it's not it's a highly white genre and white artists tend to get all the credit when kimya dobson has been at this for a long fucking time yeah that's i mean i was definitely on the garden state soundtrack bandwagon uh which (laughs) felt like a little bit of a turning point uh, followed by the OC, uh, I think they called them mixtapes or mixes, the OC mixes. And yeah, like you're saying, I mean, the, the, the main bands that kind of emerged from that were like the Shins, Death Cab for Cutie, like very kind of white Midwestern sort of, uh, I guess they're not actually literally Midwestern, but yeah. <laughs> isn't Death Cab, uh, Pacific Northwest? Yeah. They're, they're Seattle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the Shins might be as well. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, they're, they're, they are that, that kind of, stereotype that you're talking about like those are who we picture as as the indie rock bands and i mean i i would also say i i think that's really interesting i didn't know that about juno being the first to to make it to the charts since dream girls and if dream girls was the last one like that's a musical those like yeah. those soundtracks are designed to to sell that way whereas juno was really kind of tapping into something different like a a, a real kind of in, indie movie 
kind of moody indie movie uh, a sort of tradition. Mm-hmm. So let's go down some rabbit holes, some freeform discussion. Uh, so, and Liz and I mentioned in our Miracle uh, episode how incredibly Midwestern and middle class this movie feels. Um, and also, Juno came up because we talked about how much we love movies set in winter. But one thing I want to point out, because at least Miracle has the excuse of being based on a true story in which everyone was white. Um, how much filmmakers in the. My problem is not just that this is an extremely white movie. Um, my problem is the way the 2000s really equated not just Midwestern, but also also middle class with whiteness. Yeah. Yes, the Midwest is quite white. As I said off mic, I'm going to Wisconsin in a couple weeks and I predict that uh, I'm, you know, it's going to be a very white event, but it's not 99% white, which this movie is. And like, I've even said it before, I have no problem if you have a character of color who is portrayed negatively when they're not they're your only character of color. And like, so the fact that Su Chin is this like inarticulate hyper-Christian who seems like infantile and sheltered, that is such a very specific Asian stereotype that makes me so uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, we're we're forgetting one person, which is the ultrasound tech, who is also oh, portrayed right. negatively. <laughs> oh no, it gets worse. They're both so puritanical. They're, yeah, they're the two people who judge Juno's tr- like reaction to her own pregnancy in very different yeah. ways, but in in very unfair ways. Yeah. And and to be clear, I don't think critiquing this movie from a social justice perspective means you don't love it. Because one of the things with this podcast is it, I don't ever want this to turn into a nostalgia BJ. Uh, nostalgia doesn't mean we we un- we uncritically love it. Um, that said, I do find myself kind of fighting back against the accusation that this movie is anti-abortion. And I feel really sad when I read Diablo Cody's reflections on that and how she might have written things differently if she'd known how things would turn out. Um, I think a thing that gets lost in Juno is that it never, the movie never says abortion is wrong. It does say abortion wasn't right for Juno. But for me, there's the argument to be made that Juno is 100% pressured out of getting an abortion. Su Chin manipulates and guilts her out of it. And that happens to a lot of people because it's an important thing to note that Juno then goes through a really difficult pregnancy emotionally and because she chooses to remain pregnant. Like, if her life would have been great if she got that abortion. But the, the only difference is the movie wouldn't happen and the movie needs to happen. I think that's, I think that's true. And I mean, I, I even think her response to the pressure is one of the fascinating things to me because I don't read her as seeming all that bully like her reaction doesn't seem like she feels bullied mm-hmm. she just seems so aloof about the whole thing she seems so kind of like i guess i'll get an abortion i don't want a kid oh yeah fingernails oh this is kind of a weird and unpleasant place to be like mm-hmm. like she doesn't i, I mean it's, it's one of the things i really love about the film is watching her reaction be this kind of roller coaster of emotional responses but none of them actually seem to be panic uh, and it's mm-hmm. not that i think that like teenagers who get pregnant don't have a right to panic that is something that would make perfect sense for her to panic about but the fact that she doesn't i find is such a fascinating character trait um Mm -hmm. and in that way i i I have a lot of trouble with the idea of this being an anti-abortion film because i think that sort of leads us down a road where the concept of choice itself can't be depicted as as such unless the choice is abortion if that makes Mm. sense it's like there's kind of this like no win situation in that in that uh in that type of critique of this film i think 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I, and I mean, I think uh, one of the things that I love specifically with what you're describing it is the fact that Janie is her stepmother, not her biological mother, who is, as far as we can tell, like kind of kind of like your your like stereotypical dead meat deadbeat mom who just like fucked off and never yeah. never looked back and Janny is so great in that role partly because she's playing such a such a compassionate character who like has really fully embraced Juno as her own you know what and also because both these movies are set in Minnesota she is basically a slightly less hot mess version of her character in Drop Dead Gorgeous she's oh, yeah. the like you are my surrogate daughter I would move heaven and earth for you yeah. like Um, so I also, I have read one argument and I used to understand and agree with the criticism that the movie makes abortion clinics look like these cynical, dirty, awful places. And, uh, it's funny because I edited me talking about this out of last week's episode, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, but the difference maker for me was getting an abortion myself. And the clinic I went to looked like this clinic in the movie, um, except it was actually darker. Uh, Mind you, it was a very rainy day, but like it didn't have extremely extremely large windows and for those listeners who have never been to an abortion clinic a thing that a lot of even movies and tv gloss over is and at least here in communist canada abortion clinics are extremely nondescript the the one i and many other people went to did not even have a sign they don't want to have signs they don't want to be identified this was like on top of another like storefront um and the you know the place yeah, it looked kind of dated and had old magazines on it. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a supporting, safe, and important environment. Of course, also, of course, everyone in an abortion clinic is going to be sad and uncomfortable because it's not a fun place. Abortion is a net good for society, but no one is jazzed in an abortion clinic. So I think Juno's discomfort about the abortion clinic is actually a great commentary on how her head was a little messed with. I would actually say that that scene in the clinic when she bursts out is the only time you really see her panic. Um, you know, as, as you pointed out, Fred, <clears throat> she's pretty calm up until that happens. So, um, and also, she really needed someone to be with her and support her. And for what it's worth, at least when I, mind you, this was 11 years ago, they make you they make you have someone with you so that they can right. drive you home. You know, also you're going to puke your guts out. But uh, yeah, that's, that's Bree's oversharing abortion corner. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I mean, Bree, you described Juno as uh, a grounded film. And I think, you know, I haven't had the experience that you're describing, certainly. But when you describe, Arrived that I'm thinking of the last time I went to see a family doctor. It was a new clinic that I'd never been to. And uh, I ended up slightly late for my appointment because I couldn't find it because it wasn't properly indicated outdoors what it was because most clinics aren't. And then when mm-hmm. I walked in, it's just this kind of dingy little space with like fluorescent lighting and clinics all look like that. Yeah. <laughs> and in that sense, it's like, okay, the abortion clinic in Juno doesn't look like a Hollywood clinic but it probably looks like most other clinics that she would have actually found in the Midwest had she just been going to like, I, I don't know, get her tonsils removed or, or whatever else. It would yeah. have been much nicer than that. And I mean, the, yeah. the even the, the receptionist is like not unsupportive. She's like kind of unprofessionally talking about the flavored condoms that her boyfriend uses, which is kind of funny and if anything, sex positive. <laughs> Are flavored condoms still a thing? Because that was such a cultural moment when I was in high school. We don't have to answer that. 
So I, this is a good transition because last time I rewatched this movie, which was about a week ago, I found myself thinking this movie feels it, just as much as this movie feels Canadian, even though it isn't. This movie feels queer, even though there's not really queer representation. Of course, it's a huge combination of like, we know Elliot Page would go on to come out first as gay and later as trans. Um, also, this ends at prom when they did their episode on Juno a couple years ago. They pointed out that there is a trans reading of this movie, especially with a lot of the body horror references and stuff. Um but um, I don't want to make it sound like they think being trans is body horror. One of the hosts of that show is trans, but um, like the way Juno relates to her own body and stuff. Um, but I think there's something very authentic and wonderfully strange about the lack of chemistry between Elliot Page and Michael Sarah. I think it helps make it look like typical adolescent awkwardness. And when you contrast that with Elliot Page and Olivia Thirlby and how they are on fire in this movie and now we know the subtext if you've read Page Boy or some of the interviews since it came out that those two were having an absolutely torrid fling behind the scenes and their chemistry together reminds me and I, I think a lot of us have had this experience being a closeted bi girl in high school and the way you're so free and celebratory and happy with your friends and you look back and realize when you're out oh my god that was a crush I mean I would also add that maybe the only straight couple with chemistry are J.K. Simmons and uh, Allison Janney because mm-hmm. Jennifer Garner and uh, and uh, Jason Bateman also have like zero chemistry. Uh, mm-hmm. Like they don't work as a couple, and I, and I think that's an interesting thing to consider where where we get kind of. Uh, bleaker sort of disappearing for most of the movie like he's he's sort of he's sort of a nice guy but he's also like not taking as much of an interest as he ought to in the pregnancy but which kind of frees Juno up to have this adventure on her own where she is exploring kind of non-traditional ways of engaging with pregnancy of engaging with relationships Um, and in that way I think you know maybe maybe I, I don't know if I'd go as far as to call that a queer reading of the film, but it does sort of flirt with something a little non-heteronormative and and uh, alternative to kind of a mainstream view of just families. You know, her giving the, the baby to Jennifer Garner, regardless of whether there's a father in the picture, um, while embracing kind of her own, uh, her own kind of new family that no longer includes her own, her own birth mother. Like there's something like maybe something just just shy of radical about what the film is doing i think with those types of dynamics radical so i actually think the true star of this movie in terms of just giving the best performance is jennifer garner um i also want to add i think i mentioned this to you fred um back when this movie came out i used to really get compared to elliot page when i've never found any physical similarities between the two of us. But I'll tell you what it is, is that I also always used to wear my hair in a floppy brown ponytail <laughs> every day. And I was kind of sarcastic and didn't wear a lot of makeup. So if you if you were that, you you were you were Juno. Um <laughs> Wizard. But I but I have also been told by a few other people that I look like Jennifer Garner. I don't think I look like her now, but sometimes when I wear makeup, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see why people say that. Well, when I watched the commentary and they were saying they liked the casting choice of Jennifer Garner because they found that she kind of had a similar look to Elliot Page. They almost looked like they could have been related. And that was a nice little coincidence. I'm like, okay, maybe other people are seeing something (laughs) that I'm not. But like her face in this movie tells so many stories. Like she has this kind of like 
she's been hurt before, but also like this hopeful twinkle. Um, I think Cody does a great job of writing her as a person we're supposed to hate before peeling back the layers. And she plays every single one of those layers, whether it's protection or the image that she puts out. Um, and it doesn't, it feels authentic, not like a gotcha when you find out, ah, she's actually a nice person. Um, in particular, I want to call it the scene where she confronts Mark uh, about like, Juno, what did he do to you? And she immediately goes to Juno's side. She immediately says, what did you do, Mark? And it makes you wonder, like, does she have reason to suspect him? Has he, does some, have, has he done something like this before? And I feel like she tells that story in her performance. And I love that. Yeah, the to jump in here, the, the scene that stood out to me for Jennifer Garner was um, when they're in the mall. Oh, my God. Yes. And Juno just like, no, touch my stomach. Do it. <laughs> uh, like that, her acting there is impeccable like just getting to the emotional core of this like woman who's been through a lot partly because her husband's a dirtbag um uh that she it becomes real to her in that moment and thus becomes real for us and that Mm. that that scene really just blew me away i think it becomes real for juno in that moment too like there's there's this kind of breaking of of juno's like kind of shell um that that kind of uh that kind of like nonstop sarcasm of Juno, even in the moments leading up to it where she's like, oh yeah, they call me the, what do they call her? The, the cautionary, co- whale. cautionary whale. Um, and then, and, and yeah, she's like, yeah, 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 just touch it. Go for it. Maybe, maybe try talking to the baby. And then like, as she's watching Jennifer Garner go through those, those stages of like connecting to the unborn baby, she's like, like, I think that's the moment that she kind of decides, right? She's like, I, this is the mother of the baby like she's she's clearly she's clearly got this this is clearly like the right person in a way that i don't think she ever connects to jason bateman they connect on a completely different level um Mm. even in the even in the good ways that they connect and the the bad ways that they connect it's like totally divorced from what their relationship is in terms of her pregnancy whereas in that moment i think she and jennifer garner kind of understand each other or she understands jennifer garner um, in, in like a really moving way. I think that's one of the, the moments in the film that really kind of make me pause uh, and, and, and react from an emotional place. Like the film is willing to go somewhere that isn't just sarcastic uh, mm. uh, for, for the sake of like such a huge payoff. Yeah, I think you also think about the way that Juno as a character, she is used to confronting everything through like 3000 layers of irony, right? And I know this is a very cliche thing to say, but you understand that that's a protective mechanism. If you were a kid who liked to joke a lot, odds are at least some of that was a protection mechanism. And when you consider Juno's history, she doesn't display a lot of angst about the fact that she was abandoned by a parent, but that's probably going to give any teenager a decent amount of angst. So um, I, I think like, and that also explains like why she like, Elliot Page's crying in this movie is so good. The breakdown in the van after the confrontation between Juno and Mark and Vanessa is so heartbreaking. And that's because it's like, oh yeah, this is what it's like to finally feel things and become emotionally invested in things. And damn it, it's uncomfortable. That's why I don't do this very much. Yeah, that that vulnerability really comes through, I think, and, and is is maybe why I think the film works so well and why I sort of bristle a bit at, at the, the idea that it's like, 
corny or cringe or or whatever it is that's like oh it's it's a little too sarcastic or whatever it's like no there's like moments of real like raw vulnerability that i think works so well mm-hmm. i mean we're all cringe millennials here yeah it's fine um, <laughs> yeah so uh, we we've gone to we got to the modern equivalent portion of the show, and I'm excited about this because the last few episodes have been like, oh, they don't make high school movies anymore, or they don't make sports movies anymore. Um, Juno, uh, as we've established, like did actually set off a trend of like the faux indie and like you know the not like other girls girl movies, you know girls being the center of movies that aren't rom coms, I should say, and that has largely stuck around. I I think inevitably there's always going to be comparisons to Lady Bird which I completely understand that from an aesthetic perspective. And Lady Bird is a touch different because like it sits with you longer and it gives you a lot more to kind of discuss. Like there's and there's meant to be more ambiguity in Lady Bird. Like you're not meant to argue about how good of a person Juno or her stepmom is. Like with Lady Bird, the movie is kind of made for the discourse era. Yeah, I mean, the Lady Bird also doesn't have the kind of conceit at the center of it where, you know, it's like, Juno is built around the pregnancy in a way that I think mm-hmm. Lady Bird is a much more kind of slice of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, sorry, Matt, you were going to say something? Yeah. Like, so I want to make a comparison here that like if so there, there's Mean Girls and there's Juno. Mm-hmm. Mean Girls got its kind of second take in um, in, in uh, Easy A, I think. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that Juno got its second take in Edge of Seventeen. Uh, a movie that I'm not huge on. I, I love Haley Steinfeld more than life itself. I think she's like one of our like great young actresses. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie's got a central conceit that that the whole film spirals around. In that case, it's mental illness as opposed to pregnancy. But that feels to me like the 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 modern take on or the, the more contemporary take because I think that was 2016, 2017. So mm-hmm. like a, a full 10 years later. We could even um, we could even throw in Bumblebee to stick to uh, Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> oh God. Uh, um. So, uh, for me, also a closer comparison in terms uh, now, much heavier film, but eighth grade in terms of like it's a melancholy choice. Juno feels like it was written to be slightly unstuck from two thousand seven pop culture, like. Y- there's pretty much no mentions of current TV movies or music. Um, as it turns out, that anime, Most Fruitful Yuki, entirely made up. Um, they designed they designed that cover like the crew did, um, which I love that. I'm sure you could find, uh, or sorry, it's not an anime, it's a manga. I'm sure you could find a manga of a pregnant uh, superhero, right? It's a thing. Yeah, you uh, whereas, think so. Yeah. Eighth grade is very present in, like, hyper-present in 2018, but I would at least say that it is, like, you have the exploration of, like, familial relationships and, like, a female character who's having to kind of figure things out through trial and error. Um, But I would, where I think these indie aesthetic movies don't quite compare to Juno is how Juno elevates the dialogue just slightly. Like, these characters are a bit too clever to be teenagers. Um, Some people say unrealistic. I just say a little bit elevated. But since then, we've really fallen in love with hyper-authentic dialogue, which I consider kind of cringe, but, um, you know, the, the Zoomers can t- consider Juno cringe, so who am I to talk? Oh, but eighth, like, eighth grade I th- is, is a great example of the kind of movie that follows in the footsteps of Juno. Mm-hmm. But, like, 
its realism is the source of its cringe as opposed to the artifice being the source of cringe. Like I can't, I, it took me years to watch eighth grade and I, I love Bo Burnham, but that movie took forever for me to actually get to mm-hmm. because every time I would turn it on, like the way the realism of how that girl talked just drove me nuts uh, <laughs> in a way that like watching Juno today was just pleasant. It was just yeah. a pleasant experience. Yeah. Um, so um, I, if, I would, if I can oh, just, before ahead, we move Brian, on to yeah. the next thing, I, I think I would also add that, um, like you said, you know, it, it sort of feels divorced from pop culture. And I think they, they very intentionally didn't have people using cell phones at a time when mm-hmm. they would have been. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so I think that really also adds to like, like putting an extra little layer between us and the film's world in a way that, yeah, I, I think I agree with both of you that, that, that hasn't, that hasn't happened so much in teen movies. Like I want to compare it to something like to all the boys I've loved before, but like the tone is a bit different. Um, but it has a bit of that similar kind of heightened sense of reality. Uh, a little less edge, but that that similar sort of heightened reality where I think Juno is like not quite as edgy as something like Repo Man or or the Dune Generation, but like is kind of playing a similar game, like not not quite as heightened as those two, but those kind of exist in this weird bubble of artifice that I think Juno is sort of like slightly moving towards without totally abandoning realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, audio medium so folks can't see at home but I just want to point out that when Fred brought up All the Boys I've Loved Before Mint began nodding vigorously um, <laughs> it's so good that first one at least I haven't watched all of the sequels it, there's a bunch of sequels in a show or something there are yeah I've not followed it up but that first one was <laughs> yeah. it's really solid to All the Boys did come up on last week's episode on The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants which is not a good rewatch I will say or reread <laughs> Um, so I will give a shout out to, I I think this is the first time I've seen a movie that I don't think you two have because I didn't see this movie legally. I'm sad to say, uh, it premiered itself by, and it has not had a wide release since. Um, and I first learned of it because one of the girls from Dance Moms is in it, but it's called Bloody Hell. It stars uh, Maddie Ziegler, who um, she she had a great turn in uh, The Fallout. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, loved her in The Fallout. Um, so this is her first leading role, though. But Bloody Hell is a uh, movie. Um, it's by uh, Molly McGlynn. She's the writer and director. Uh, it's filmed in and set in Sudbury, which I fucking love. Um, Mint, I feel like you'll appreciate that as well, having Northern roots. Um, but... Um, it's uh, described by Molly McGlynn as a traumedy, um, which when you think about it, like what Juno goes through in teen pregnancy is inherently traumatic. But it's um, it's about a young girl uh, who discovers when she you know wants to go on birth control and visits her OBGYN alone for the first time that she has a reproductive disorder that affects like one in 5,000 um, defab people, uh, where she basically has an underformed vagina and no uterus and well you know she can produce hormones and stuff she essentially cannot have penetrative sex and it's about kind of the self-discovery that she goes through as a result and the way it changes her friendships and her relationships it's really really upsetting and really 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 funny um i can't wait for this to get a wide release it's called bloody hell and I will also say, because it is set in Northeastern Ontario, aesthetically extremely similar to Juno. Um, cool. Can't, yeah. wait to, yeah. can't wait to see it. Yeah. As soon as so I can. We, 
Yeah, so we've gone to the lightning round. Bring back the beloved bam, 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 lightning round. Uh, so let's do a modern recasting of Juno. We're starting with Fred. In 2023, who's your Juno? I, I mean, I think I've missed the boat on this because Jenna Ortega has gotten a little too big already, but she does mm. sort of have a similar energy and is on that cusp of of uh, kind of indie darling and, and, uh, and, and something a bit more mainstream. Mm-hmm. She's also got like a wicked sense of humor. How she about does. you, Mint? So dark. <laughs> uh, my pick, and it's because like sh- this actress is great in the Ant Man movies, which are movies I'm very mixed on. Um, but uh, if you've seen Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret this year, uh, Abby Ryder Forston, I think, would be a really interesting choice, even if she's a bit young in terms of the comparisons, because both Paige and Sarah were 20 when they were filming, I think. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think this actress might be a bit old, but she looks extremely young. Uh, Caitlin Dever is my pick. Mm-hmm. She uh, she was in... Um, I always mix up the characters' names. Uh, I always forget which one was named Molly, and, and uh, but uh, she was in Booksmart alongside Beanie Feldstein. Yeah. Um, I just think... Her face actually reminds me of a young Elliot Page with that kind of like pixie-ish wide-eyed type thing. And um, her nervous energy, I I love Caitlin Dever. I think she's extremely endearing. Uh, so on that note, who's your bleaker? I, insert literally any of the Stranger Things boys. They would all work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's no there's I, I spent a long time looking for someone of the right age, of the right quality, and it's just it's one of those books. It just is. <laughs> they always end up in Stranger Things or It. I'm gonna agree with you guys, but I will actually specifically say I think the one of them that plays awkward the best is uh Caleb McLaughlin. Um I I don't like when they make Lucas cool. I prefer when Lucas is kind of a dork, um, because I think he actually has the best kind of you guys and like they i mean they're they're giving him less and less to do every season but yeah um so then who's our vanessa and mark all right mint mint can go first with this one (laughs) sure yeah um i've got two i've got Mm -hmm. an american pair and then i've got a british pair because once i thought of it i couldn't stop so the american pair that i feel would just work is Mm -hmm. rachel mcadams and adam scott like i think Mm -hmm. that would work well but I saw the new Indiana Jones movie fairly recently, and I actually loved it, which I was not expecting to. And Same. I kind of think Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Andrew Scott, go, like bringing the Fleabag reunion back, would be a really interesting choice for a Vanessa and Mark pairing. Uh-huh. How about how about you, Fred? I, li- I like that a lot. Um, I I feel like Jesse Eisenberg and Amanda Seyfried would work uh, would work mm. really well. Would have kind of a similar energy. Amanda Seyfried's eyes, I think, are very expressive the same way Jennifer Garner's are. She has those kind of like, they look like they could cry at any minute eyes, which I love. Um, So I had a really hard time with this. And uh, yes, this is because I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan, but I actually settled on Aaron Paul as the mark because first of all, I think, okay, let's go with a guy who's been on, who's done TV. Aaron Paul always gets settled with really intense roles. And I feel like that's almost become his downfall and why his work has largely slowed down. He was great in his recent turn in Black Mirror and uh, Black Mirror Beyond the Sea. Um, But I find... He is that exact right age where, like, he says something that's going to seem cool. And it's like, no, actually, this is extremely creepy. You just don't know that it's creepy because you're 16 years old. Um, I uh, had a harder time finding a um, 
a Vanessa. And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny if it were just Kristen, Kristen Ritter and they could have a little, uh, <laughs> little reunion. Um, but I do genuinely love Kristen Ritter. I don't think she's necessarily right for this role though. But I, I love yeah. that you both went for reunions of, of uh, wonderful on-screen couples. <laughs> yeah. I was I was going to say my favorite actual couple because again it's the summer of Dunst which is uh Kirsten Dunst and uh and Jesse Plemons oh, yeah. except that when Jesse Plemons plays creepy it's I'm going to die tonight creepy. Yeah. <laughs> and again I didn't mean to go for another breaking bad thing. Um I, trust me I've watched more than one show. People <laughs> might not know that about me. I have watched more than one show. <laughs> um actually another uh actor I just thought of because I find we finally got to actually see her play like the mom of a teenager but Laura Prepon. Uh mm. I, I feel like she's an actress that like should have gone in a way different direction than she did. Totally. Um I I think, unfortunately, playing Carla Homolka in a film that was way too sympathetic to Carla Homolka really hurt her career, and um, I can't blame it for doing so. Um, and, like, you know, she was a completely, you know, much more ed- edged-out character in um, in Orange is the New Black, but seeing her in that 90s show, um, I don't know, she played kind of like a very loving, sweet mother, and... I don't know. I'd like to see that as as Vanessa. I'd like to see her actually be vulnerable. Also, she's very pretty and I love redheads. <laughs> um, all right. So let's say uh, you're part of Diablo Cody's writing and editing team and she's saying, hey, I really need you to figure out a better way to get Juno out of having this abortion. Um, so, Mint, I, I saw your notes on this. I actually want you to lead us off on this. Yeah. So it's it's the biggest weakness of the original movie. And it's the hardest part about making this movie in 2023 because of the fall of Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was thinking about this, the first thing that came to my mind, because uh, I saw Oppenheimer recently, and there's a scene like this there, um, what, what was of like her going to the abortion clinic and mm-hmm. seeing someone taking um, uh, license plate numbers down. And then I realized that's an entirely different movie from Juno. That is mm-hmm. way too scary. It's way too real. It's not what this movie is. Yep. And then I tried thinking of something else and it was all in this realm of too real, too scary. So this isn't an answer because I don't know. Like, I don't know how you get around this problem in 2023. I, I really like that. That's why I wanted to default to your answer because the more I think about it, the more like, and you know, Canada, you ain't perfect. But the fact that this is not currently a culture war here, and this isn't something I had to really think about, um, definitely gave me a bit of like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty fucking lucky, aren't I? Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about the ways in which this movie was seen as uh, anti-abortion at the time that it came out, because that whole conversation, as far as I can remember, really took for granted that abortion was totally safe. Like there was no way it was going to be challenged there was no or in any in any realistic way that 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 might be a right that would be lost and so yeah it does it does really make it an impossible thing to update because there's that whole extra element that just makes it impossible Mm. I, I think this is the first time I've ever been totally satisfied with a non-answer across the board in a lightning <laughs> round. Um, so of the seven main actors in the movie so Paige, Shirley, Sarah, Bateman, Simmons, Garner, Janney Rank them from strongest performance down the line, starting with Fred. I like this. I didn't even have to think twice about any of these. Garner, Janney, Thurlby, Simmons, Page, Bateman, Sarah. And and Mint, I, I see you smiling. 
it, it, in my notes, I saw Fred's ranking and I just wrote, Fred, you have to stop being right all the time. <laughs> like, it, 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 that, that is the, the, the only one where I could see, like, someone preferring would be swapping Janny and Garner. But, like, mm. they're the standouts right up top, yeah. without question. I am a little bit different. I will say Garner, followed by Paige, uh, then Janny. Simmons, Thurlby, and I might kind of put Bateman and Sarah around the same. I will say that, like, I think Sarah gets a bit of a raw deal in this movie. Like you said, Mint, he disappears for, like, whole chunks of this movie. Um, Also, I will note the fact that they made his character canonically Jewish when they had no reason to when Michael Sarah is not Jewish is just, like, the funniest, weirdest thing to me. Like, he really was the 10 years later version of Jason Biggs of you're not Jewish, but you're going to be playing Jewish constantly. Um, which, it, and it was the weirdest thing. They just like, oh yeah, we put a Hebrew school certificate in his room. Why, why you didn't need to do that. Um, but, um, I, I think Michael Sarah gets a lot of like, he gets sidled with a lot of baggage of like, oh, he always plays the same character. He always plays the same character. And yes, this character kind of is George Michael Bluth. I would actually argue that he's very different from Evan and super bad, but I think Michael Sarah, like, there was a weird backlash against him when he was the only person I saw on screen who actually talked like most teenage boys and actually looked like most teenage boys. I think the tentativeness with which he plays Bleeker is fantastic. I do, however, think one of the problems is he makes Bleeker a little bit too likable. Like uh, both of you said, like, he's not as concerned with Juno as he should be, but... I, I just, I don't like him to get lost in this movie because he is a wonderful, wonderful part of this movie. And, and you know um, what I'll say, as much as I didn't have to think twice about my ranking, I think everybody does a great job. I don't, it's not like a, from great to terrible. It's really like different layers, different levels of like really solid performances. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned this on the Arrested Development episode, but Jason Bateman is so good at playing a secret dick. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, yeah. Uh, so what's one iconic fit from this movie that you just love? Let's start with Fred. I really love Vanessa wearing the Alice in Chains shirt. Um, I think it looks really great on her. I think she like totally rocks that. Um, and I, I think just what it communicates about her uh, and her relationship to Mark, where she is is taking an interest in his world of like yesteryear's cool guy music uh, in a way that he doesn't really take an interest in anything that she's into, uh, including mm-hmm. parenthood. <laughs> All right, Mint. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's the red zip up hoodie. Like I, it's, it, it's iconic to me, but also like, I'm not, I am fashion illiterate. I don't, it's not a thing that sticks out to me most of the time. But when I saw Elliot Page wearing that in this movie, I was like, Oh, so that's where I got my taste for, for zip up hoodies that that explains so much about me <laughs> hard candy might kill that for you mint i'm sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> i totally forgot <laughs> uh, i i do seriously hope you watch hard candy after this um you don't watch it alone or do watch it alone do watch it alone um uh so i will first of all now I remember why the Juno comparisons were so prevalent because i did wear every single day to school a red zip up hoodie 
Um, I wore a school uniform and my school colors were red and blue and you were allowed to wear a hoodie as long as it was school colors. And so I wore my red zip up hoodie every day and I wondered why people called me Juno. Um, I will say my ironic pick is Michael Sarah's track team outfits, complete with the terry cloth headband. Love that. I genuinely love that cut of shorts. I think they're called dolphin shorts in a, in fashion lingo. Um, and I think like, you know, I don't get why dolphin shorts haven't on, on dudes haven't made a comeback. I really don't. Um, I think we need to have the summer of dolphin shorts. Uh, you know what? It's still just July. Like, it's, it's not too late. Um, but genuinely, the outfit that Juno is wearing when she confronts Bleeker about the pregnancy, and she's wearing kind of a military green hoodie, and uh, especially the way she's also surrounded by a lot of brown earth tones. I love earth tones. I love how comfy she looks, and I was always rocking the army green in high school, so... Um, all right. What's our favorite song on the soundtrack? All the young dudes. It's, I just like, yes, it's terrible for karaoke because it just keeps going, but yeah. like that song comes on and I'm transported. I just, I love it. It's uh, yeah. such a great song, such a great cover. Um, and uh, Fred, you... thank you for acknowledging that it's a cover. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of wild that the cover has managed to eclipse a David Bowie original, of all things. Um, I really love, and this one, like, all kind of half doesn't count because it isn't really in the movie because they're just singing it together, but Doll Parts by Hole uh, is such a great song, and I love that, that that's what they're playing together. One of my favorite songs of all time. Um, I will say The Use of Sea of Love. It, that's the chills in this movie for me. That's always like, if I haven't cried yet, that will be the one thing that pushes me over the edge. Um, so people have said that this movie feels extremely Canadian. If you were to re- reimagine Juno as a truly Canadian film, where do you set it, Mint? My hometown of Whitby, Ontario. It's just, <laughs> it is just a giant suburb. Like it feels that there are shots in this movie where I can picture a scene, a, a, a place in Durham region that's just like where this could be shot. I could shoot it outside my childhood home in and around the elementary school there and it would look pretty similar. It's mm-hmm. eerie. And and the Richdale Mall is the Oshawa Center. Um, yeah, exactly. I You know, I didn't realize until I taught in Whitby that people call the Oshawa Center the OC and every time someone said it, I'd do like the, do. the Jason Bateman, <laughs> don't call it that. <laughs> don't call it that. <laughs> anyway, Fred... Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, as Van, as distinctly Vancouver as that movie looks, uh, the town they live in doesn't feel at all like Vancouver and doesn't feel at all like the West Coast. So I, for me, it's totally like a small town Ontario movie, but it needs to be close to a big city. Like, I, I don't I don't know where Juno is supposed to take place or what the city that Mark is moving to to move into his cool guy loft. They mentioned St. Cloud, so they're in Minnesota. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's like a GTA setting. I think I think if you were to set it explicitly in Ontario, it would have to be not far from Toronto proper, but not Toronto proper. <laughs> See, I went with the Ottawa Valley. Um, I went with like this is somewhere like Renfrew, Cobden oh, totally. kind of thing, or like you're you're in like Renfrew where you still have like Cobden and Carp to look down on, but you know. Ultimately, you're still fucking Renfrew, but then you have Ottawa close by, you know. Um, I uh, 
Fred, if being being an Ottawa guy, you'll appreciate this. One time when drunk, I peed on the Diefenbunker. Um, <laughs> my best trespassing story. Um, and I feel like that would be like a thing that you would write into a Canadian version of Juno is make some sort of joke about trespassing in the Diefenbunker. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so let's get into your fan fiction, starting with Fred. Like what the next year of Juno's life looks like. Do she and Bleeker stay together? If not, like how long do they stay together? How do they break up? I, I don't think they do. I think that's the, the weakest part of the movie for me is that dynamic between the two of them. I think it it sh- it should have made more sense that they were like in love. Um, so, mm-hmm. so for me, I think that there's no way that that's going to last. Uh, and I think that Juno kind of has, has been forced to grow up quite a bit by the end of the film. So I suspect that, you know, her senior year of high school, because she's a junior, I had to go back and double check and make sure that next year she'll she'll be <laughs> she, it's that wonderful line how far along are you i'm a junior yeah that's right <laughs> um so yeah i suspect that her senior year we'll we'll see her kind of planning to leave her hometown and, and kind of aim for something something outside of her own reality mm-hmm. and mint yeah i i'm taking like the full senior year where you get the summer in there where like part of it is her prepping for a like summer adventure in europe like go like getting the hell out of the small town feels like a thing that juno would do mm-hmm. i i really think it would have been just a stronger element of the story if she and bleaker had just reaffirmed their friendship like yeah. fr- friendship rules and this isn't a love story so um i would have rather they just make up as friends because also i love movies that underscore the importance of friendship and you can have as as platonic proved you can have scripted entertainment that is just about male female friendships that where love doesn't come into it at all yeah. um yeah, I also, for me, I I would like to imagine that, like, maybe they kind of have, like, a sweet little high school romance until they go to college. And then as they're, you know, getting ready to move together or whatever, the topic of whether or not they actually want kids is going to come up. And, you know, they bo- both have differing views. And, like, I feel so strongly about the fact that I don't want children. It is a first date thing I bring up because I'm like, look, if you want children go somewhere else uh so yeah i think i could see that being the way it ends um so what's uh what's your favorite one-liner insult or catchphrase from the movie fred i i think the moment where juno's dad and her friend the olivia thurlby friend kind of have their little moment of understanding each other is my favorite when juno's dad says i didn't think bleaker had it in him and she kind of breaks and says, I know, right? <laughs> that, that line cracks me up every single time. I think it was in the trailer, too. And it's it's just like, yeah, it works on me every time. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the it's Janie telling off the ultrasound technician because mm-hmm. um, it's this moment of like it, it, it's it's this preview for non-West Wing fans of what Alice and Janney's movie career is going to look like. Is this, like, ability to just tell someone off in the most condescending way possible that she is so good at. And that scene just rules. That's her being... That was a preview of her in I, Tonya. Yeah. Um, so, uh, for me, uh, it's right in the scene you mentioned fred at least once a week i say that i'm gonna punch someone in the wiener (laughs) and (laughs) i don't actually punch people in the wiener once a week fortunately but um yeah everything jk simmons says in this movie lands so incredibly well um also for some reason even though this isn't like 
this isn't an iconic one-liner or something, but Jennifer Garner's very like awkward, um, forced cheeriness on hate to interrupt the jam session when uh, Juno and Mark are playing. I kind of, I adopt that tone a lot. And often like when I have to break things up with my kids, when they're all like really excited in class, I'm like, okay guys, hate to interrupt the jam session. And I realize like, oh, I'm in that stage of my life. Like I'm 34 now. I'm starting to say that shit unironically. And it's actually like a really good portrayal of what you start to talk like in your mid thirties. Sorry, Mind, you'll relate someday. Um, (laughs) So... So to conclude our thoughts on Juno, we need to determine uh, two big things. You know, you're watching this for the first time in 2023 in your 30s slash late 20s. Um, What aspects of the movie do you think have and haven't aged well, not just socially, but in terms of style? So let's start with our buddy Fred. I think the movie still looks great. I think that's something that some sort of 2000s indies have sort of lost a little bit. You know, they're, they're like washed out or or like there's some hyper realism that just looks a little dated and i think juno is has this like it's just beautiful it it looks terrific Mm -hmm. um and that animated intro as much as it's been done to death since i still think it looks great and and really kind of pumps up the energy of the film in exactly the right way uh the Codyisms in the movie, uh, the dialogue, they are a little too rapid fire, uh, and especially mm-hmm. so now. Uh, we've gotten definitely tired of that. Uh, you know, it wasn't entirely new. Like, I, I've already compared it to Gilmore Girls. There's the kind of Joss Whedon way of talking. There's, like, the Dawson's Creek well, and adults, kids as adults. We kind of... We kind of associate that style now more with the blockbusters and the Marvel totally. movies. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that, I think... You know, it, I was I was fine with it then, but it was it was already a little too much, and and now I think that yeah, that it's she kind of mellows out. You know, when we get to to Jennifer uh, to Jennifer's body and then to young adult, she's she's still using that in a way that I think like that's that's totally a strength of Diablo Cody's, and I'm so glad she didn't totally ditch it. But it is a little mm-hmm. much in Juno, um, mm-hmm. and I, I would say that uh, the relationship between Mark and Juno is depicted incredibly well. I think that that's still one of the most powerful things about the film. Um, it, it feels very, very real, and it feels kind of in the worst way possible, totally relevant. Um, and, you know, I, I think Juno today, the depiction of abortion would absolutely kick off the most insufferable Twitter discourse imaginable. Uh, but I still like it. I still like the way that it's it's sort of messy and complex and ultimately comes down to you know, a kid making a decision that we don't even really need to understand. Uh, mm-hmm. She doesn't need mm-hmm. to justify it. She doesn't need to explain it. It just is what it is. And I, I kind of love that. Mm. All right. And our youthful friend, Mint. Yeah. it. Like I said, I, I felt very comfy watching this movie this time. Um, mm. And that was, that. that's going to stick with me more than any previous viewing has i think mm-hmm. um and the just to repeat what fred said that the um the mark juno relationship is so well depicted like the, the scene that really stood out to me was the second of their encounters where there's this like moment where they're both sitting on a couch and there's that silence that in an appropriate relationship might lead to a kiss but it's this awkwardness there that just like sent a shiver up my spine. And I was like, Oh wow. This is like, um, 
what you're getting from Cody is the um, the, the the chemistry between them, and then Reitman is giving the space to breathe so that you really feel how off uh, um, how off Mark is. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, this movie feels incredibly dated to me. Like it feels it feels pre financial crash because I remember the before and after of that. It feels um, pre Obama. It feels pre Trump. It feels pre COVID. It feels pre most of my life experience at this point. And so, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a mixed bag from me. And I don't know how to recommend it to someone who doesn't have that experience with growing up with it, where for me, there is a nostalgia to it. It's not like clueless or something that I would recommend to one of my teen students where like, yes, you're too young to quote unquote appreciate clueless, but you're really not. Um, For me, I actually think one of the things that I don't want to say hasn't aged well, but would certainly need to really be stepped up in the modern day is the depiction of Juno herself. And, you know, as I said, like, there weren't a lot of characters like Juno at the time. There are now. And I'm so grateful for that. Actually having female leads who are a lot more complex um, and who are even hyper-feminine and complex. And so I I think Juno would just need to, like, it feels like the one character thing we get out of Juno is she marches to the beat of her own drum. She's unique. I would need a modern retelling to tell me why is Juno unique? What is unique about her? What does, how does she relate to the world around her? Um, I think you guys are right that the Juno-Mark, um, romance is so true to life. Um, I have unfortunately had a Mark in my life who was um, a a manager of mine at one point early in my career. And um, the, the way, like, being told by uh, by a guy you're not like other girls is the greatest feeling in the world. Being told by a man you're not like other girls, that's something you only realize in retrospect is a fucking red flag. Um, and I think not only is it a great cautionary tale, but it's that without being preachy. And I think that is the best. And we see Juno, you know, she can't be told by her mother or her stepmother, who's like just very serious, says, you know nothing about the dynamics of married life. You can't do this. But you see her figure it out for herself. And that's, I think, the most wonderful part of this movie. I also think an aspect that has aged really well is Juno's relationship with every other female character, with Leah, with her stepmother, with Vanessa. And I think, like, you know, because we love talking about female friendships and female relationships, that would be the big positive discourse about this movie. Um, All right, so, Fred and Mint, thank you for being with us here on this seventh episode of Tales from the Rec Room. If you want to, once again, each plug where we can find and read your thoughts, now is the time. We'll start with Mint. Yeah, uh, I'll be on Twitter until there is no Twitter anymore. And I I refuse to call it X. uh, And I'm at Mintaford, M-Y-N-T-A-F-O-R-D. You and Liz are both the band going down with the Titanic. How about you, Fred? You can also still find me on Twitter slash X slash whatever the next iteration of Elon Musk's weird little fantasy is going to be at F-A-B-L-I-C-H-E-R-T. Uh, and, uh, please, if you like Diablo Cody, uh, my book on her follow-up film, uh, Jennifer's Body is called Extra Salty and it is available online and in bookstores. 
All right. And as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde, and you can find me on Twitter occasionally uh, as prune underscore underscore Tracy, or follow this podcast at Rec Room Tales. Uh, I am, however, also on Blue Sky at prunetracy.bluesky.social. Um, new episodes come out every Thursday during the summer, and you can join us back in the Rec Room next week with Chelsea Jupin to talk about Titanic. Take it easy. Have a good one. Take it easy, home slices.